0: Let's play a little Price is Right together, all right? Which is worth more, iron or gold? All right. How about a Timex or a Rolex? Rolex. How about the net worth of Sam Byler, huh, or the net worth of Bill Gates? Bill Gates. Uh, some measure in millions, some in billions. Did you know that Bill Gates, it, his net worth is over $79 billion dollars? That's obscene. Car lovers, which is worth more, the Nissan Versa or the Lamborghini Veneno? The Veneno. The Veneno has a modest price tag of $4.5 million that buys you 750 horsepower and 0 to 60 in 2.8 seconds. But hey, the Nissan Versa does have a six-way manual driver's seat with armrest. Who likes to cook? All right. Which is worth more, the T-Fal signature 12-piece cookware set or the all-clad MasterChef 2 stainless steel triply bonded 10-piece cookware set? It's only a $430 difference between the two. So we all obviously know that some things are worth more than others. They have different fair market values, but some things have no fair market value. They have no accessible worth. Which is worth more? The combined worth of some gold, a Rolex, Bill Gates' net worth, a Lamborghini Veneno, and the all-clad MasterChef two stainless steel cookware set, or your children. That shouldn't be hard to answer. All right. Some some things transcend fair market value. They are priceless. But in the economy of the universe, if you add up all the fair market values of all the goods and services and all the priceless things, there is something that has supreme value and worth. In fact, it's worth more than the sum total of all created things. And how could we possibly assess the worth of everything contained in the universe? Where do you even begin Take all the luxuries and indulgences and pleasures known to creation, add them all together, and Jesus is worth more than that. He surpasses everything else in worth. That's why this phrase is in our church's purpose statement, leading people to find their greatest joy and pleasure in Jesus Christ above all things. That's showing the supreme value and worth of Jesus Christ. That's because at Jerusalem Church, we believe that knowing Christ is supremely valuable because of Christ's supreme worth. Paul experienced this. He sincerely wrote this. Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Excuse me, Lord. Paul was saying knowing Christ is better than that. Jerusalem Church is is really all about helping you see the matchless worth of Jesus Christ. How nothing that you could own or experience can compare with knowing him. And Jerusalem Church is all about helping you be happy, most happy in knowing him. It's all about Jesus here. We don't like to see people pursue their greatest joy in things that will never satisfy them we don't like seeing people frustrated in life and that's why we preach and we teach christ crucified because we know that the the only way for people to experience their greatest joy is to know christ the only way for people to be most happy and most fulfilled and most satisfied is for them to know christ now and forever we're going to see the supreme worth of Jesus Christ in John chapter 12. That Jesus is worth more than that. Jesus headed back to hostile territory. Jerusalem was hostile territory for Jesus because the Sanhedrin was plotting his murder. He fled to Ephraim for a time and we don't know exactly how long he and his disciples stayed there. Jerusalem was filling up for the Passover feast. Um, One study note said that Quote, During the Passover and the week-long Feast of Unleavened Bread, the population of Jerusalem increased from about 50,000 to several hundred thousand. End quote. Jerusalem was filling up, and a rest warrant was out there. It was issued, and Jerusalem was buzzing over Jesus. And I said last week that whenever you see the word therefore, you should ask, what is the therefore there for? Um, verse 1, Jesus therefore came to Bethany. This connects right back to John eleven fifty seven, 57, the verse that precedes it, which says this, Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. Do you find that odd? Why go back if there is a warrant for your arrest? Well, he returned to redeem. And, he, and the, the hatred and the violence were all part of God's sovereign plan, he came to Bethany six days before the Passover, which uh, would begin on Thursday evening, so it's likely that Jesus uh, returned to Bethany on Friday, or possibly Saturday, depending on how you count the days. Lazarus was there, uh, the same guy Jesus raised from the dead, a famous ex-dead man living in Bethany. Now, that's spectacular. Uh, they, they held a dinner in honor of Jesus in Bethany, and Jesus was the worthy guest of honor. Jesus was the worthy guest of honor. This date non, or dinner, or banquet, was held in honor of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. They were celebrating that. The word un, or so, connects verse 2 back to verse 1. Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. He was back in town. So, they held a dinner party to celebrate Jesus non was a, a dinner likely drawn out over the course of an evening, allowing time to relax and chat and eat and, and just enjoy your time. And you may have been to a dinner party, something like that, that just, you know, is long and you're kind of talking, but no dinner party you've been to has been exactly quite like this. This was remarkable. Matthew and Mark tell us the dinner was held in the home of Simon the leper, which we'll get to a little bit later. Later, Jesus was the guest of honor. In first century Judaism, it was improper for women to recline at table with men. So it's likely that the guests were men, at least Jesus, the 12 disciples, Lazarus, and probably Simon. Martha was there to serve, and Mary was there as well, probably to help out her sister, maybe. Um, This was some dinner party. The, The Son of God was eating dinner with them. That right there makes the dinner party. I'd like to be at that dinner party. But the man Jesus raised from the dead was alive and eating at this dinner party. This is spectacular. Uh, the dinner was not to celebrate Lazarus' new heaven tourism book release. Did you know that heaven tourism is a growing subgenre of Christian literature? And it's producing tenuous and deceptive bestsellers like 90 Minutes in Heaven. Heaven is for real. And the boy who came back from heaven, among others. Now, I want to tell you this story. Back in January 13 of this year, Alex Malarkey, the boy from the boy who came back from heaven, he's now 16, he wrote an open letter to some in the Christian book industry, and I want to read you his letter. Here's what he said. Please forgive the brevity, but because of my limitations, I have to keep this short. I believe he's in a a wheelchair and uh, on assistance. I'm not sure what his mobility is and everything, but I did not die. I did not go to heaven. I said I went to heaven because I thought it would get me attention. When I made the claims that I did, I had never read the Bible People have profited from lies and continue to. They should read the Bible, which is enough. The Bible is the only source of truth. Anything written by man cannot be infallible. It is only through repentance of your sins and a belief in Jesus as the Son of God who died for your sins, even though He committed none of His own, so that you can be forgiven. May you learn of heaven outside of what is written in the Bible, not by reading a work of man. I want the whole world to know that the Bible is sufficient. Those who market these materials must be called to repent and hold the Bible as enough. In Christ, Alex uh, Malarkey, 16 years old, totally recanting the story that was a bestseller. It's big business to die, or almost die, to come back to life or to recover, and write misleading bestsellers. Big, big business. And as far as we know, Lazarus never wrote a heaven tourism book. But Lazarus was really dead for four days. And he was alive at this dinner, celebrating and honoring Jesus, not his bestseller. The disciples were there. Simon the leper hosted everyone. Lepers didn't host dinner parties. If Simon still had leprosy, he wouldn't have hosted this party. Simon was an ex-leper, and it's probable that Jesus healed Simon of leprosy. And so there you have a former dead man. There you have a guy who had leprosy, and they're eating together, and there is Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who had unrivaled power, unrivaled beauty, and they're just having a moment of it. That's some good dinner conversation, right? There's something to talk about there. Martha served That's the Greek word diakone, which is the same as used for serving as a deacon. You can probably hear it, diakone. Martha kindly waited on them. She loved Jesus and she served the dinner guests and and it was admirable. After Jesus raised Lazarus, some people snitched. Some people plotted his murder. Some people in Bethany threw him a party because they wanted to celebrate his goodness and his just amazing Um, personhood he was the guest of honor you know those who respond to Jesus with affectionate and devout faith are those who see and savor his unmerited worth unbelief is desiring something more than Jesus just look at the rich man from Mark 10 Just watch. Just look around you. Watch how people worship money, success, sex, knowledge, power, comfort, self-determination, freedom from moral constraints. Their lives and their choices say every day that Jesus is worth less than that. Faith is trusting that Jesus is worth more than that. And conforming all of your life to him because he is worth more than that. To love Christ is to believe with all of your heart that Jesus is worth more than that. Jesus is worth more than that. Remember Paul in Philippians 3 8? You see, everything would be loss for you as well. Everything. When you see the hoopericon, the exceptional value or exceeding worth of knowing Jesus Christ as Lord. This is enormously practical for you. You make choices every day based on what you value the most. Your whole day is filled with choices of what you value. So this is really practical. Now, as you study these verses... In John 12, you need to also study Matthew 26, 6 through 13, and Mark 14:3 through 9. And the reason is both Matthew and Mark record this same instance, this same dinner party, just from a slightly different angle and style. So you're going to see kind of a a combination of things from these as I talk about this story. During dinner, Mary took her alabaster vial filled with around 11.5 ounces of expensive ointment made from pure nard, and she was generously um, uh, anointing the head and feet of Jesus. She then humbly used her hair as a rag to wipe the feet of Jesus. There's a lot to understand here. Eleven and a half ounces of expensive ointment is a very, very large amount. Uh, nardu or nard probably refers to the oil extracted from a plant, Nardosticus jatamansi, which is found in the Himalaya mountains. Uh, Nard was an expensive import because of the rugged distance that it had to travel uh, to get into Bethany and and the surrounding areas. Pure nard was the high quality stuff. It's like, this is a really good stuff. Very precious, very expensive. Historically, nard varied in price from 25 to 400 denarii per pound based on quality. Mary had pure nard. Judas assessed its value at 300 denarii. A denarii was one day's wage for a common laborer. So the pure nard Mary had was equivalent to a one year's salary if you deduct Sabbath and holy days. A first century family could live for at least a year, if not more, on the worth of this expensive ointment. It's probable that Martha and Mary and Lazarus were from a wealthy family. Keep in mind that Lazarus was buried in a tomb, which would also suggest wealth. We don't know how Mary acquired this ointment, but she used it as she pleased. The astronomically priced ointment, and a lot of that expensive ointment, was held in an alabaster vial, a type of white and translucent ornamental gypsum. Mary broke the vial... As Jesus reclined at the table, and she poured all of the ointment out on Jesus, reserving none. Um, She poured it on his his head, as Matthew and Mark record. She poured it on his feet, as John recounts. Um, Breaking the vial suggests that Mary used it all. She just lavishly dumped it out on Jesus, pouring the ointment on his body, which would include head and feet, and would demand a large amount this was an extravagant gift of mary verse 3 says the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume and that was good this is a good sweet aroma a good fragrance a little bit ago christina uh, she broke this little um, little uh, sample size bottle of clinique happy in the bathroom it fell and when you walked into the bathroom, it was like, oh, man. I mean, it just filled the bathroom. Um, perfume, I think, too much of it, it it's, it's nauseating. You know what I'm saying? It, it's meant to be just like a little bit. So it's like, those people, you don't want to stay away from those people. But anyway, Mary's ointment was different. It it wasn't clinique happy. It, it was something that was a sweet aroma, filling the house, blessing those who were there. Now, why did Mary do this? She loved Jesus. That's why she did it. He was worthy of her love and devotion. She rightly believed that even his dirty feet were worthy to receive the most extravagantly priced ointment. Washing and anointing feet was done by servants and so Mary took on the role of a servant and served him. He was worth it. Mary wanted to spend that much on Jesus. She didn't see it as waste, rather a luxurious and suitable gift even for his feet. Jesus was so worthy that Mary took her hair and wiped his feet. Her hair. Hair is precious to a woman. She had long hair probably. She let it down, and she used her hair as a rag because his feet were worthy. Dr. John Piper captured Mary's act like this. Jesus, cleanness and sweetness befit you and your purity and holiness and power and grace. But as for me, dirt and odors befit me. My hair is the most beautiful and the most clean thing I have. But if it could serve to magnify your purity and your sweetness, it would be my honor to turn it into a rag for your feet. You see, Mary was privileged to do this for Jesus. William Hendrickson wrote this, one hardly knows what to admire most, the irrepressible character of Mary's devotion or the lavish nature of her sacrifice. The former, of course, produces the latter. And what that means is that she was so deeply devoted to Jesus that she was compelled to lavish him with this gift. And that is admirable in In Matthew 26 and Mark 14, Jesus said that Mary did the beautiful thing. He called it a beautiful thing. And and that wherever the gospel was preached, her loving act would be told in her memory. And we're talking about her lavish display right now, remembering Mary. And Jesus prophesied this moment right here. Now you may have thought about this. Was this sensual in any way? For us in 2015, this moment is a little odd. Are you feeling that? I don't know if you thought that way, but no, it is not central in any way. It was a different culture, footwear was different, and feet were really dirty. And it was customary to welcome guests as they came in your home to wash their feet, even to anoint them with oil. There were other guests present. And though it was taboo for women to let their hair down in the presence of men... Cultural etiquette isn't equivalent to biblical morality. That's how legalism gets set up. We create rules, but that's not equivalent to biblical morality. Wastefulness was their concern, not lewdness, not indiscretion, wastefulness. It seemed to be generally accepted what was happening. It was just this was just too good to be true about this amount and the cost. So lastly, Jesus was always totally and entirely above reproach. And everything that he ever did. He was out without even a hint of sin. Without even a hint of sexual thought or sensuality. He never had that. He was pure. He was perfect. Mary simply loved her Lord. Uh, We should admire her extravagant love. Uh, We should admire her devotion. But there is something more admirable here. Mary is not the central figure of this narrative. Jesus is. Jesus is. Jesus is the most extravagant gift of this narrative. Mary saw the inestimable worth of Jesus, and that is why her love and devotion overflowed. Let me ask you a really tough question. Do love and devotion overflow from your heart Because you see the immeasurable worth of Jesus Christ. Are you so enamored by his worth that love and devotion to him just spill out over into your life? Is your life this lavish toward Jesus? These are simple, very practical things. You see, Judas had another reaction A reaction like most of America, a reaction that you and I are prone to have. Judas cherished currency more than he cherished Christ. Verse 4 tells us that Judas Iscariot was one of Jesus' disciples. Iscariot likely referred to his hometown, could have meant uh, from Kiriath. Jesus chose Judas. Judas followed Jesus. He was close to Jesus. He preached. He did miracles. He cast out demons. Yet Judas never loved Jesus. His life was just an external show that was motivated by personal gain. This is the kind of faith that many people have. They use Jesus as a means to get what they really want. That's not Jesus. So they come to Jesus. Yeah, I'll do this church thing. Yeah, I'll do this faith thing. Yeah, I love Jesus but it's all about getting something else, that Jesus is the means to the end of getting something else that's not Jesus. Jesus is the end. The Father is the end. The Spirit is the end. Eternal life of knowing God is the end. So Jesus is a means unto that end of knowing God and treasuring God. And Judas just didn't have this. Verse four says, Judas was he who was about to betray him. And the little clause in there uh, means certainty. It can mean certainty. It foreshadows John 17, 12. Judas's betrayal was part of God's sovereign plan. Yet Judas was personally responsible for his actions. Verses 5 through 7 reveal the stark difference between Mary and Judas. And yet his response appeared altruistic. Judas and the others watched Mary anoint Jesus and Judas spoke up. Why was this ointment not sold? For 300 denarii, one year's wages, and given to the poor. We have a lot of poor people around here. What are you wasting that on Jesus' feet? Maybe flick a little bit and then go sell, and we'll be done with it. Hmm. Well, Judas said what the others thought Because if you look over in Matthew 26, it says this, when the disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, why this waste? For this could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. So he's just saying what's on everybody else's mind. Mark 14 says something similar. Judas spoke up. Now, helping the poor was really, really important. Really important. The suffering of thousands of poor people could have been eased by the sale of this ointment. That was true. Judas and the others saw waste. Judas saw opportunity. Look at verse six. Judas said this, not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. uh, Judas was uh, conniving. A conniving and duplicitous thief and traitor who, as the treasurer of the disciples, he held the money bag, he embezzled funds from the ministry of Jesus. The poor were not his concern, he was his concern, and it sounds like some of our modern day televangelists. You look at their lifestyle, I don't think the poor is your concern, I think you're your concern. Um, what was the worst thing about Judas's heart? At this moment, Judas didn't think Jesus was worth it. Wasn't that it? He didn't see the inestimable value of Jesus. He was upset at Mary's love and devotion and the wasted opportunity for him to profit off of Jesus. He loved money. He betrayed Jesus for 30 silver coins. The tragedy is that Jesus didn't see and savor the supreme value of Jesus, what John calls the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride in possessions. Jesus was blind to the surpassing worth of Jesus Christ, knowing him, the joy that he gives. People don't love and follow Jesus because they can't see his infinite worth. That's the reason more people aren't following him. They can't see his worth. They actually believe other things, fill in the blank, is worth more than Jesus. Mary showed us the beautiful essence of belief. Judas showed us the horrific uh, essence of unbelief. When you look at all of the things in your life from family to friends to wealth to success, can you look at it all and genuinely say in your heart, Jesus is worth more to me than that? May I suggest that whatever your that is is where you have idolatry and false gods and what you bow to worship. It's what you enjoy the most. It's what you value the most. You orient your life around what you value the most. So when you look and say, I value that above Jesus, then that is your God, and that is what you serve, and that is what you love, and that is what you are devoted to. At least we must be honest with ourselves about this. And if you're like me and you struggle uh, enjoying Jesus most, that's a constant struggle for me, I wonder if you're ready to sincerely pray that God changes your desires, I wonder if you're ready to pray the bold prayer and mean it. Lord, loosen my grip on that so I can enjoy you more and have my greatest joy because that ain't doing it for me. Are you fighting against the carnal desires of your flesh with faith? Believing that Jesus is worth more than that. Faith, trust God to stoke the embers of your heart into flames. Trust Him to do that for you. Ask Him to do that for you if you're struggling. Look to Christ, not your own ability to conjure up some um, affection for Christ. It's got to be the Holy Spirit that leads us to do that. So look to Him. Look to Christ. Follow the Spirit. Cherish the Word of God. Pray. Now, we, we come to verse 7. It's really hard to understand. The language is complex. What does Jesus mean in verse 7? Commentators suggest different things. The ESV leaves out the word un, which I don't think it should do, or the word, therefore, the disciples were indignant. Judas spoke up, therefore, Jesus rebuked them. Leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. Well, what's it? Well, folks, I'm not sure, but I think I'm on to something, Several hints at what he might have meant. Jesus joyfully accepted Mary's gift. We know that. He said it was a beautiful thing. We know that. He saw something more inside of Mary's act. Jesus saw her anointing as preparatory. It was preparing him for his burial. And I think what verse 7 means is that Mary had kept this ointment for Jesus, and with murderous threats looming, this was the time for her to give it to Jesus. There might not be another opportunity, and so she takes advantage of, of this time. Jesus said in Matthew 26, verse 12, In pouring this ointment on my body, he said, she has done it to prepare me for burial. So if you compare that back to verse 7, it appears as if Jesus means she has kept the ointment for this special occasion to prepare him for his burial. Oils and spices were used to anoint dead bodies. Um, so Jesus was headed toward the cross. He was headed toward the tomb. This was a prophetic word about where he was headed. Jesus knew his burial was close. In this moment, she was preparing him for that. that That's the best I can do, I think, for right now. Is Jesus selfish then in verse 8? For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. Is he selfish? Well, you have to really study this. Jesus was not uh, uh, disengaging the poor or saying you shouldn't give to the poor. That wasn't his point at all. He loved the poor. Jesus loved obeying Deuteronomy 15, verse 11, which says this, For there will never cease to be poor in the land. Therefore I command you, you shall open wide your hand to your brother, to the needy, and to the poor in your land. Jesus loved Deuteronomy 15. And he loved the poor, and he wanted to extend grace to the poor. Jesus was all about that. He had perfect compassion, perfect love. But at this time, at this moment, Jesus accepted the love and generosity of Mary because he was worthy of it. He transcends us. Jesus was right. There would be much more time to care for the poor. But his time with them was limited. So this time was all about him and the lavish display on him, the king. He was days away from his cross from his crucifixion from his death and so this moment of extravagance was fitting for the king who would give his life for others this text is a problem with those who associate or equate social not associate equate social justice with gospel helping the poor was very important to jesus but notice that at this moment physical poverty was not his primary concern his concern was receiving the beautiful thing, which honored him in an extravagant way. His primary concern was spiritual poverty, which he was going to work to combat. Does Jesus intrigue you the way he speaks? Does he draw you into his words to understand? Preparing him for burial was uh, with extravagance was more important than immediately meeting the needs of the poor, you, we have to think about that. What does that say of Jesus knowing how important uh, helping the poor is? Honoring him while he was still with them took precedence. That's provocative. His life, death, burial, and resurrection would be infinitely more valuable to the poor than the redistribution of wealth from the sale of expensive ointment. Jesus is worth more than that. One church planning website said this about how to draw a crowd. And this is what it said. Well, a public hanging might do it, or you could hand out money, or you could arrange an appearance by Lady Gaga. Not ready for that? And I answer, no, no, we're definitely not ready for that. Jesus drew a crowd because he was awesome. Because he was awesome. In verse 9, a large crowd of Jews learned that Jesus was in Bethany, and so they wanted to see him. Naturally, he raised a dead guy. Mystique draws a crowd, Truly amazing things draw a crowd. Around 500 million people a year go to the Grand Canyon. Why? Why go to some big hole in the earth? Because it's spectacular. It's breathtaking. That's why it's so uh, attractive to us. People wanted to see the man who could do anything. Anything. And they were drawn to him, and so they start going, but they also want to see Lazarus, who was a living evidence of miracles. And it would be uh, fascinating to meet a man that was dead for four days in the tomb and who Jesus brought back to life. The entire situation that they had at that dinner party was unique and exceptional. Uh, One of the most famous paintings in Amsterdam is Rembrandt's Night Watch. Probably worth millions. I don't know what the value is. But back in 1975, some guy repeatedly slashed the painting. He like attacked the painting and he claimed that Jesus made him do it. There are some weird people out there. But anyway, he was helpfully escorted to a psychiatric hospital. The painting was restored, but if you go see the painting, the slash marks, you can still detect them. Sometimes awesome things provoke insane reactions. Listen to this. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well. Because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. So you hear about a man raising another man back to life. And so your first inclination is, we got to kill him. Put him down because I'm jealous of that guy and i he can't be having all the success. So we have to kill Lazarus. In case you haven't noticed from our study of the book of John, they didn't like Jesus. They didn't like him. And now they're conspiring the murder of his close friend because it adds to his success. If this guy is alive and well and walking around telling his story jesus is growing in success we can't have that we're going to kill him we'll kill them both we'll get rid of the problem and i guess this is where i'd like to end loving jesus and living for him will not make your life easier uh but it will make it more joyful mary was rebuked because of her kindness To Jesus. Lazarus was targeted by powerful people because Jesus raised him from the dead. Loving Jesus can be dangerous. Jesus may lead you into danger, but he's always worth it. He's worth it. These priests, um, they were priests. They wanted to kill Lazarus. Priests wanted to kill Lazarus. Men tasked to serve in the house of God were so angry they wanted to kill Jesus, the Son of God, and his buddy who he raised from the dead. This is blind, irrational rage. They hated Jesus, and they hated Lazarus because he was raised by Jesus. Oddly enough, this is is amazing, the chief priests were Sadducees. You know what was kind of special about the Sadducees? They didn't believe in the resurrection. So they're trying to kill a man because Jesus resurrected him from death. That's just... Mind-blowing. They didn't even say, you know what? I probably shouldn't believe that anymore. (laughs) Theological reason to kill Lazarus. Bad doctrine has grave, grave consequences. Lazarus was a walking testimony of the power and the grace and the love of Jesus Christ. Because of him, people believed in Jesus. He had a compelling story. Um, Someone else wrote about it. He was compelling evidence that was impossible to refute. He was alive. Whatever danger we face because of Jesus, Jesus is worth more than comfort and safety. Uh, This is the whole point. Jesus is worth more than that, whatever that may be. I'll leave you with this simple application. Our word worship comes from the word worth, meaning value, and the suffix ship, meaning condition. To worship is to see the intrinsic worth of something and to adore it and serve it. To worship Christ is to see his intrinsic and surpassing worth and to adore and revere and serve him because of his worth. Worship Christ because he is worth way more than that. Let's pray. Father we thank you. You are so good. Thanks for telling us about the worth of your son. I'm glad I've heard about it so that I can turn my eyes to him and see his uh, insurm- not insurmountable, his, his uh, just glorious, glorious worth and value. And, and I want to value him more. And I, I'm sure there are people here today that look and say, I just don't value him like I should, and so we're all in that together, God. We need you to give us stronger affection for Jesus we need to be able to see even more his incredible worth. And so many things blind our eyes to that. So I just pray that this morning you will strengthen us. May your Holy Spirit in us lead us to see his worth and to cherish that worth in such a way that we build our entire life around him. And that our pleasure all of a sudden becomes honoring Jesus because he is worth more than that. In the name of your worthy son, who is worthy of all of our worship and praise, we pray. Amen.